welcome you to week one of a brand new series uh, that we're going to be in uh, for the fall that we're calling, you guessed it, The Faces of Sin. This is going to be a 10-week series that deals, buckle up, with sin. Uh, I want to be real clear here. This series is not going to deal with particular sins, meaning don't come here expecting like a week on envy, a week on lust, that kind of thing. Instead, what we're going to do is uh, look at how Scripture, in a number of different passages and a number of different stories, talks about the concept of sin in general. And I realize that hearing that uh, might sound kind of depressing to some of us, but I actually think this series could be really hopeful. And to explain what I mean, a personal story. When I was 21 years old, I woke up one morning um, with stiffness in my neck, which was kind of weird to me, number one, because I didn't remember hurting it, number two, it didn't really go away. And so after that, a few days of that, I developed a low-grade fever, and uh, like I said, this is when I was 21, I used to never get sick because I didn't have kids when I was 21, now I'm sick all the time, I was almost never sick back then, so I had a low-grade fever for a few days and couldn't shake it, went to the doctor, gave me some amoxicillin, which I took, amoxicillin knocked the fever out, but then I developed full-body hives, head to toe, literally covered in these red splotches. And I remember my feet itched so bad that I had to burn them in the bathtub with scalding hot water just to get them to stop itching long enough so I could go to bed. So I went back to the doctor, super thankful for his medical intervention, and I didn't really need to say anything because you could just look at me. And so he... he, uh, prescribed me a high-dose steroid, prednisone. I took that, and that kind of caused the hives to... They didn't take, take them away, but I guess it, at least it's, it stopped the advance, you know, however you want to phrase that. Uh, but then the symptoms only started getting uh, stranger and more frustrating. Um, I remember I would just randomly and totally without warning uh, lose the ability to hold food down. Real pleasant story I'm starting the service with. Um, I had extreme fatigue. Uh, I was probably in the best shape of my life back then. I was trying to get ready to get into the fire department, and it just took all of that from me. Uh, I got locked up in my sinuses, literally could not breathe out of my nose for, for a couple of weeks. In, incredibly infuriating to not be able to breathe out of your nose for that long. But probably the strangest symptom and most unsettling was I would just start sweating profusely. I remember a buddy of mine invited me to go to a Bible study, and I was sitting in this like classroom and the teacher was talking about Abraham and Isaac, and I, I was sweating so bad just sitting in this chair, my shirt was wet. And I've, I've always thought, you know, like, what that teacher thought was, you know, maybe they were like, oh, man, I'm really killing it. That guy's under <laughs> deep conviction. I'm sorry, whoever you were. It had nothing to do with your teaching. My body was just like a nuclear reactor at the time. And so it had been six weeks of this, and I had been to the doctor three times, Per the doctor's advice, I drove to the ER once, and nobody really knew what was going on. And so um, then my throat started swelling shut. Yeah. So I would look in the mirror, and I could see it getting tighter and tighter, and it was like snow white. Very unsettling. And it finally swelled shut to the point that breathing was activating my gag reflex. And so I distinctly remember I uh, was laying on the bathroom floor at my dad's house. I could not eat. I could not drink. I couldn't hold anything down. And so we finally flew the white flag. We called 911, and I took an AMBO ride. 
over to BWMC, and they admitted me. And a doctor uh, came into my hospital room and told me that I had good old-fashioned mononucleosis, and apparently that I had about every symptom you can have with mono. And so they wound up keeping me for three days, during which time they put me on IV antibiotics and steroids and a fun drug you may have heard of called Dilaudid. It's also known as synthetic heroin. That was an interesting 72 hours for old Pastor Ryan. Sermon for another time, though. And so I say this to say after six weeks and losing 16 pounds in all of my physical conditioning, uh, I finally started to recover. And during those six weeks, I remember being so frustrated that I, took, I picked up a chair in my bedroom and I threw it against the wall as hard as I could, which was not very hard because of how weakened I was. But the reason I was so frustrated, and maybe you can relate to this, this is kind of why this is why I'm telling this story. There was nothing more frustrating to me than knowing something was wrong without knowing what it is. Nothing more frustrating than knowing I am clearly not functioning the way that I'm designed to function. It's all, we're playing whack-a-mole with all these symptoms in my life, but we have not located the source of all of these issues. So when a doctor finally walked into my room and said, hey, this is what we're dealing with, even before I started getting better, just having somebody identify the condition, just hearing what it was, was so liberating to me because now I knew what we were dealing with and we could finally begin actually dealing with it. And that story is really a picture of why we need to understand what the Bible is telling us about sin. All right, let me just give you kind of three things that... that, um, that require an understanding of sin that really are my three kind of hopes for this series. First and foremost, apart from an understanding of sin, you really can't understand yourself. You're just going to, be, you're going to really suffer from lack of self-awareness. French philosopher Blaise Pascal put it this way, certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine of original sin, and yet, without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. Uh, the Bible's filled with stories of men and women who were, for long periods of time in their life, blissfully unaware of the sin that was lurking and growing in their own hearts until some situation uh, brought that out, and it blew up in their face, and it made a mess of their lives and the lives of the people closest to them. That's what happens if you don't know what the Bible is trying to get you to understand about sin, namely your own sin. Uh, however, secondly, apart from an understanding of sin, you also really can't, you can't navigate the world wisely. You know, if you, if you don't know... Um, what the Bible's talking about, when it talks about this, this sin that is lurking in every single human heart, then what, what's going to happen is you're going you're to be just profoundly naive, and you're going to be constantly you know, rattled and disoriented by the brokenness that you experience in the world. So we have to understand sin to understand us, to understand the world that we live in. But thirdly, and I think this is the most important one, apart from an understanding of sin, you really can't be transformed by this thing that we call grace. Um. No one has ever been transformed by Jesus and begun to change in a deep and lasting way apart from being painfully and personally aware of sin in their own life. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, it says that after Peter was preaching, in verse 37, it specifically says that when they heard Peter's message, they were, this is the literal translation of the Greek, they were pierced to the heart pierced to the heart. And what that's describing is a moment in a person's life in which you kind of shift from 
you know, I'm not perfect, but who is? You know, that kind of very intangible and impersonal intellectual understanding of sin. When you're pierced to the heart, it means your, your, your um, understanding of sin moves from that to becoming something that, that you're so aware of the sin in your life that it actually wounds you. It feels like a knife in your heart. And as a direct result of that, Scripture says what only can be described as revival broke out as some 3,000 souls were saved in this movement that we now refer to as Christianity began. My point, men and women only began to change in a deep and lasting way when their sin became uh, personally and painfully, they became personally and painfully aware of it. That formula has remained unchanged for the last 2,000 years. And so my hope for this series is that for us as a community and whoever God brings here is that we would, by spending time looking at what God has to say about this topic, that we would not only grow to a deeper level of self-awareness, uh, but that we would become much more wiser in our dealings with the people and the world that we live in. Uh, but thirdly and most importantly, that, that as a result of spending time looking at what God has to say about sin, that we would be in a position to be transformed more deeply by the grace of God, which we so desperately need. And so the plan for this series is uh, it'll be a 10-weeker, but for the first nine weeks, we're going to look at different passages and stories of Scripture that look at sin in different ways, and then we'll complete the series in week 10 talking about uh, the kind of the antidote for sin, which is this thing that Scripture calls the discipline of repentance. And so I don't know what you're doing for the next 10 Sundays, but if you're free, I would uh, love to see you here at 20 Gambrels Road at 9 or 11 a.m., and I promise I will call you a dirty, rotten sinner in all kinds of new, fun, and creative ways. So with that in mind, I figured uh, the best place to start this series would be with the first recorded sin in the Bible. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, I'll read verses 16 and 17, and then chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? This is God's word. What I'd like to do uh, to lay the foundation for our series today is just, I want to look at this account and ask four questions of it. And uh, in prep for this teaching, these are actually four questions I've been asking a number of different people just to kind of figure out where people are coming from. So as I walk through these... Uh, I just ask you to take a moment and, and think through what, what are your answers to these questions. How would you answer them? The first question is, where does sin actually come from? The second, what is it? 
if we're going to spend 10 weeks talking about it, we better get around to defining it pretty quickly. What, when the Bible talks about sin, what exactly is it talking about? Uh, is it just breaking a rule, or is it something deeper than that? What is it? Thirdly, the question we're going to ask today is, what does sin do? And then fourthly and lastly, how can you deal with sin? So the first question during our time today is, is where does sin come from? And uh, I want to read just a, uh, a shorter version of, of um, what I read on the front end here. So we'll read chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where God gives his prohibition. And then we'll look at what the serpent does with it in verses 1 to 5. So, so 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're, pay careful attention to what God says here. You're free to eat from any tree of the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you'll certainly die. <clears throat> there's the prohibition, there's the warning. Verses uh, chapter 3, 1 to 5. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, I just don't understand why anybody likes snakes. I'm sorry. I've been thinking about it all week. I don't get, it's in the third chapter. Okay, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you'll die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, um, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So... God says to, um, to the man, he says, you can, all of this is yours, all of it, all of creation is yours. Just this, the fruit of this one tree is off limits. And I'd ask you to consider uh, and pay real careful attention to the two things that the serpent does with this. First off, the serpent comes and says, so God really said you can't have any fruit from any tree? which is not at all what God said, but he's deliberately trying to broaden the scope of God's prohibition so as to make God look tyrannical and unreasonable. Uh, and then with that, Eve answers back, no, that's not what he said, it's just this one tree. And in response to that, then the serpent comes out and contradicts God's warning and says, no, you will not die if you eat that fruit. Matter of fact, not only will you not die, but if you eat the fruit of that tree, you will begin to come alive in ways you wouldn't believe. That's essentially what he said. So, so let's zoom out from that for a moment here. This is the moment that sin entered the world and ask yourself, what is the serpent actually doing? And what's clear, the serpent is not trying to get the couple to question whether or not God exists. He's trying to get them to question whether or not God is good. The idea here, he's essentially saying with the way that he's phrasing these questions and challenging God and contradicting God, what the serpent is basically saying is, listen, you can't trust him. You can't trust that he cares about you. You can't trust that he loves you. You can't trust that he, he, he knows or wants what's best for you. Um, and if you hand the reins of your life over to him, you will never be what you otherwise could be. You will never reach your full potential. You will never experience life to the fullness. That is what you could call the lie of the serpent, and that lie has passed into every single human heart. Now, let me just quick caveat here. The goal of this series is to do more than just provide information. What I'd like to do is just hold up a mirror in front of us in the hope that maybe something that's said over these next 10 weeks just gets us to see ourselves and face ourselves in maybe a way that we haven't. So what I'd ask you to do with this idea that we can't trust God and we think that 
you know, the good life is outside of rather than inside of his will. Let me just take a moment and ask you to consider how well that um, explains human behavior, both what we see out in the world and what we sense in ourselves. All right, let, let me kind of bring this ground level and see if something I say in the next couple moments here doesn't hit everybody. Um, why do so many of us um, work ourselves to death trying to prove to ourselves or other people that we're valuable? The answer is because we do not trust God enough to get our sense of value from him. Why are some of us so dominated by the thoughts and the opinions of other people to the point that we are constantly misrepresenting what our lives are actually like, either in person or online, or we're constantly replaying social situations that we don't like how they went in an almost obsessive way. Uh, the reason for that is because we don't trust God enough to get our sense of self-worth from him. Why are so many of us so exhausted trying to maintain control of our lives, either bitter and resentful about what has happened to us or fearful and anxious about what might happen to us. The answer is that we do not trust God enough to get our sense of safety and security from him. Here's one that, that's pretty personal. Why do so many of us pursue relationships that we know we have no business pursuing or stay in toxic and abusive and dysfunctional relationships, ignoring all kinds of red flags well after we knew it was time to walk away. The answer is because we do not trust God enough to be our source of love and acceptance. And if none of that hits you, here's kind of the blanket statement that I think nails us all to the wall. Why is it? What's the real reason that we don't do what God tells us to do or we do what he says not to do. What's the real reason? Here's the real reason, regardless of what we tell other people or even, of our, even ourselves. It's that we simply don't trust God enough to satisfy us. We do not come before God with a posture of heart that says, Father, I have all kinds of desires swirling around in my heart, but if any one of those desires contradicts what you say, I will say no to that desire in order to say yes to you because I trust that you know what's best and you actually want what's best for me. No one approaches God that way. We have not since Genesis chapter 3. So that's where sin comes from. All the brokenness that, that we see in the world, that we sense in ourselves, really goes back to this idea that we simply do not believe that we can trust God, and we have this persistent belief in every human heart that real happiness and fulfillment lies outside of rather than inside of his will for our lives. That's the origin of sin. Secondly, what exactly is sin? Now, on the surface, this story gives us a picture of sin that everybody's used to. The couple is told, don't do this thing, and they do that thing, and that's sin. Certainly, if God gives you a command and you flagrantly violate that command, that definitely falls, according to the Bible, in the category of sin. However, when you look at all that Scripture has to say about sin, and you even see it in this story, Scripture teaches that while sin manifests itself on the surface as behavior, the essence of sin, what it, what it actually is, is something deeper than just surface-level behavior. And this story proves the point in a really um, powerful way. Uh, right before the man and the woman eat the fruit, the specific lie that the serpent puts before them, the specific temptation, or maybe you could even call it his kind of counter-promise, he says that if they eat that fruit, he says, you will be like God. And what Scripture is telling us here is that that, at the end of the day, is what we're actually after. That deep-seated in every human heart 
there is this, there's this fervent desire to try to get out from under God's authority and take the place that only he should have and try to live as our own uh, masters and saviors and lords. That's what sin is. Right, about a year ago, I, I was reading a book called Sacred Fire, and it, towards the beginning of the book, the author tells this story about an exchange that took place between a, uh, a famous author and a, um, an old monk whose name was Father Makarios. Uh, the writer asked the, the old man, he said, do you still wrestle with the devil, Father Makarios? He thought for a while, and he answered him, and he said, not any longer, my child. I've grown old now, and he's grown old with me. He doesn't have the strength. Now I wrestle with God. And this writer was shocked to hear that because in his mind, Father Makarios, you know, he's this old man, been walking with Jesus for decades. To him, he kind of looked like the epitome of holiness and righteousness and all this. And so he was taken back by that answer. And he said, you wrestle with God and you hope to win? And the monk said, no, my child, I hope to lose. And listen to this statement right after this. He said, my bones remain with me still. My bones remain with me still and they continue to resist. Now, that might sound real strange to some of us, but what that is, is an individual who has spent enough time with Jesus to know their heart exceptionally well. And in that quote, what he's essentially saying is, he's basically saying, you know, when I started walking with Jesus early on, I thought that I was wrestling with the devil. But after all these years of walking with him, I've realized that I've actually been wrestling with God. And what he's saying here, when he says, my, my, my bones are still in me and they continue to resist, he's saying that deep within him, he knows that there is a wrestling match in his own heart between him and God. And while, of course, part of him wants to lose that match, part of him wants to hand over the reins of his life completely and totally and perfectly to God, he knows that there's still a part of him that just won't stop resisting. It's what Christians call a sin nature. It's what Paul's talking about in Romans 7 when he says, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. Who's going to save me from this body of sin? And in his own way, I, th I think this is basically what, what Father Makarios was saying is something along the lines of what Paul was saying when he wrote to Timothy toward the end of his life when he called himself the chief of sinners. This really amazes me. One of Paul's earliest letters was 1 Corinthians. And in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to himself as the least of all the apostles, he, he knew he was an apostle, but he was, you know, and the, and the apostles were kind of, the, you know, they're the, the, the top tier, but he was the least of the apostles. Well, a few, a few years after that, writing to uh, the church at Ephesus in, in the letter that we now know as Ephesians, uh, Paul said, you know what, I'm actually the least of all the saints. And he started just least of the apostles. He says, no, nah, I, I actually am the least of all the saints, all the Christians. But writing to Timothy at, at what would go on to be the end of Paul's life, that's where he famously called himself the chief of sinners. He went from the least of the apostles to the least of all the saints to actually, I'm the worst sinner I know. That's, by the way, that's what growth looks like in the kingdom of God. What you're seeing in Paul's life is the longer that he walked with Jesus, the more deeply aware he became of sin that when he, when he got started, he just couldn't recognize it for what it is. But what you're seeing in, in Father Makarios, what you're seeing in Paul there is two people that have spent enough time with God to come to this deep level of spiritual self-awareness. And what they'd come to understand is essentially what the Bible is trying to get you and I to understand about ourselves in just the third chapter, that deep in every human heart, there's this wrestling match between the flesh and God, where whether we want to admit it or not, we try in all kinds of interesting ways 
sometimes through bad deeds, sometimes through good deeds, like Pharisees, Jesus called this out, we find every way possible to try to get out from under God's authority and take the place in our lives that he and only he deserves to have. That's what sin is. Now, the third question that I think this leads to is, okay, if that's what sin is and that's where sin comes from, then what actually does sin do? And to be clear, the rest of Genesis 3, the rest of the Bible, and the rest of human history answers that question quite exhaustively. But for the purpose of our time this morning, if we look at how just this passage of Scripture answers that question, what Genesis 3 is showing us is the immediate effect of sin, what sin functionally does, is that it destroys relationships. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with each other. And it even destroys our relationship with ourselves. And if we can go a little bit deeper than that and ask, well, why exactly is that? The answer comes in verse 7. The reason that sin destroys relationship like it does is because sin creates shame. You see this in verse 7, which describes the very first thing that people experienced when they sinned. In verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. That's the picture of shame. It's two people who were painfully aware of themselves, terrified of letting anybody else see them as they were. Now, it's a, as a thought experiment, it's actually a pretty interesting question to ask. So what exactly did Adam and Eve lose that day? Well, what's clear is that they did not lose their clothes because they were naked before sin entered the world. The last statement in chapter 2 is that they were naked and unashamed. So what exactly did they lose? And the answer is this thing that the Bible calls righteousness. That's what Adam and Eve lost in that moment. They lost their righteousness, meaning they lost their ability. And this is really what righteousness is. They lost the ability to stand up under scrutiny with confidence. They lost the ability to let God, to let other people see them as they were. And here's the point. We all lost it that day with them. Now, in his book... It's called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? Tim Keller, I remember the first time I read this, I highlighted it, and it, it spoke to me. I'm hoping it does some, something similar to somebody this morning. Tim Keller spends some time drawing out that sense of nakedness that Adam and Eve felt that we still experience today and how we go to compensate for it, you know, what our fig leaves look like today. So this is a longer quote but the reason I wanted to read it is, is just as a litmus test. So I ask you while I walk through this, would you just have the security and the vulnerability to search yourself and see if any of this describes any of you? Nakedness is a deep sense that there's something wrong with me, something imperfect about me. There's something inadequate about me. I'm not what I ought to be. That's the reason we cannot bear to let somebody else see us as we really are. Imagine if every thought you've had for the last 48 hours could be captured and put out over the internet. What if people saw how foolish so many of your thoughts were, how petty, how scared, how obsessed? You couldn't bear it. We spend all our lives finding ways to cover up that deep, radical sense of inadequacy. Why do so many people work themselves to death to be successful? Why do some people have no boundaries or not able to say no to anyone? Why do others stay unattached, not allowing any real friendships or committed romantic relationships to develop? Why are some people rescuers who are always trying to save people in crisis? 
Why do some live in perpetual victim mode, spending all their time blaming others for harming them? Why do others engage in abusive behavior, living a life based on the principle, do one to others before they get a chance to do one to you? Why do some work so hard to promote relativism? They say, no one can make me feel guilty. I define my own moral values. Why do others become highly religious and moralistic and then turn to condemn everyone with the wrong beliefs? Why do so many seek out non-committed sexual encounters on Tinder or Grindr when some voice inside them tells them this is not wise or right? Why do so many love to spread slander and gossip about others? Why do we want to believe that all people in leadership are really on the take, that all institutions are corrupt? Why all these things? These are fig leaves. Your perfectionism is a fig leaf. Your work is a fig leaf. Your holding on to your youth is a fig leaf. Your desperate need for approval is a fig leaf. These are desperate efforts to deal with the sense of unacceptability, of unlovability that we all have. But fig leaves don't work. Imagine for a moment trying to make do with an actual garment of fig leaves for clothing. Such a garment would be always falling apart, and so it does. And here's how he concludes this thought. If we are not willing to hear the Bible's teaching about where this sense of nakedness comes from, and if we don't recognize the fig leaves in our own lives, we will be trapped. We may spend all our time on the Internet trying to expose other people for their sins, thereby achieving a small sense of power and control as well as a biological dopamine response, which makes us feel good temporarily. Or we may move along to some other desperate effort to cover ourselves or as some say, quote, patch up a righteousness, to find ways to not let anybody, including ourselves, know how weak we really are. You're probably going to hear me say something like this in most of the weeks of this teaching Some of the most profound kind of self-knowledge you can possess is the knowledge of what particular fig leaves you construct in order to deal with your own inner sense of nakedness. And maybe it was something from that quote, maybe none of that hits you and it's something else, but the point that the Bible's trying to get us to understand here is that we're all doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did. We're all running, we're all hiding, we're all constructing fig leaves And the problem with that is that our fig leaves do not remedy our condition or take away our shame any better than Adam's and Eve's did. And so the question is, and this is the fourth and final question of today's teaching, what can be done about sin? Uh, Now here's the answer, and this is essentially the reason for this entire series. For any of us to change in a deep and lasting way, First and foremost, we have to shift from reading Genesis chapter 3 as a story about just Adam and Eve's condition to reading Genesis chapter 3 as a story of our condition. We have to understand that what happened to them happened to us. And so, of course, begs the question, what exactly is their condition? What Genesis 3 is leaving us with is this idea, follow me here. Genesis 3 is telling us that our problem is not simply that we disobey, even though we disobey. Genesis 3 is is leaving us with this idea that our problem is not simply that we break the rules, even though we break the rules. Our problem is actually deeper than that, and it leads to that. Our problem, even today, just as it was so long ago in the garden, is that the same lie that passed into their hearts has passed into every single one of our hearts We just don't believe that God loves us and wants 
what's best for us. The most memorable homework assignment I had in the entirety of my education came from a class called the Church in the Community. And all the assignment said was, help someone who was very poor and write about it. So I called up my cousin Mike, who's a county police officer, thinking he could put me, uh, kind of point me in the right direction. And he told me about a place, I think it's closed down now, called the Royal Inn. And he said, there might be some people behind on rent, and um, you, know, you could offer to pay. And uh, I said, perfect. So I, I got some money out of an ATM. I called the place up, and as soon as I did, I got just a really bad feeling. They were super dismissive and got me off the phone as quick as possible. So I drove over there. And uh, I walked into the front office, cash in hand, and told them exactly what I wanted to do, and they just wouldn't have any dealings with me. And I got the sense that, um, that they maybe thought I was a journalist or, or something, but I, I don't know how else to describe this. The place just felt oppressive to me. It just felt like something wrong was going on over there. Literally wouldn't take the cash out of my hand. So I, I walked out of the front office and I, and I, you know, I had an assignment to do. And so I started walking around the facility and I noticed there was a gentleman on the adjacent building, um, second story balcony walking. And so I caught up with him. And when I did, I realized he was a little bit older than me. He's probably in his fifties, only about five foot tall. And, um, and he walked with a terrible limp. And so I, I, I caught up with him, and I, I explained what I was doing. I said, I wanted to give you some money. He lit up like a Christmas tree, but I wanted to pray for him before I left. I also wanted to sound really cool when I asked him if I could pray for him. And so I didn't say, can I pray for you? I said, do you mind if I lay hands on you? And when I did that, he, uh, he like backed away from me. His whole countenance changed. He backed away from me, and he kind of like just looked like, you know, he kind of cowered or like went into a defensive stance, and he asked me, and this is so sad to me, he asked me, he said, uh, he asked me if I was going to hit him, and, uh, and I felt terrible because he, he thought when I said, you know, I want to lay hands on you, he thought that I was paying him to let me beat him, and so I, you know, I, I felt awful, and I apologized, and I said, that's not at all what I meant, I'm so sorry, um, and, I, and I wound up praying for him, and I drove home that day, and um, and that the whole experience just really, uh, it was eye-opening to me, but it really wounded me. It stayed with me. I mean, that was, I don't know how many years ago now, and I can still remember it quite vividly. Um, what I understand now, you know, leaving that man that day, I, I just couldn't shake this impression that he must have lived a, just a tremendously difficult life because he couldn't even recognize an act of kindness. He couldn't trust a simple act of no-strings-attached kindness when it was staring him in the face. He's just waiting for the other shoe to drop kind of thing, and and I realized based on what I see in Genesis chapter 3 that the reason that that interaction stayed with me like it did is because at least a part of me recognized myself in that man. Because essentially what the Bible's telling us here right at the beginning is that we're just like him. That the real problem underneath every other problem that we have is that we just don't believe that God loves us. And because of sin and the things that we've done and the shame that we brought on ourselves, it's not just that we don't believe that he loves us, it's that we question how a, a just God, how a holy God, how a perfect God even could love somebody like us. And I just want to say, I don't care how confident you appear on the outside. I don't care whether or not you claim to believe in you know, absolute morality or the validity of the Bible or even the existence of God, there's not a human being whose head hits the pillow that doesn't have a deep sense that there is something flawed with me and I couldn't stand up to the scrutiny of a perfect judge. It, that's our fundamental issue. We just can't, 
we can't believe that he does love us, that he could love us. And the point is, until that's dealt with, until that is uprooted out of the human heart, then what will happen, and this is the story of human history, is our lives will be continual recapitulations of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden over and over, and we will live our lives looking for fig leaves to sew together to try to hide behind and watch as they fall apart over and over and over again. And the question that Genesis chapter 3 leaves us asking is what, if anything, can be done about that? And the answer, I don't think this is going to shock anybody, is the cross. Now, maybe this is going to sound strange to you, but I don't know if I've ever really asked myself this question uh, until I put this teaching together. Right? I've been teaching the Bible now for over a decade, and, and one of the things that just spending that much time in the Bible has taught me is that there's nothing that God says or does that he says or does by accident. Everything is intentionally said and done by God. And when I was putting this teaching together, thinking about not just the fact that Jesus died, but the way that Jesus died, I just started to ask why. And, and I want to be clear here. Of course, Christians have always understood that Jesus had to die for us. God cer certainly could not just look the other way with sin, or he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't be holy if he just swept sin under the rug, and he's not going to deny his own nature. So there needed to be a perfect payment for sin. The only hope that we have is that Jesus, the sinless lamb of God, be sacrificed for our sin. But the question that I don't know I've ever really asked before is why did he die in the specific way that he died? You know, why didn't Jesus die by being stoned to death or burned at the stake or any other way? Why crucifixion? And, and as I was putting this particular teaching together, thinking about the, the sin that we commit and the shame that it brings on us and the way that we hide, the thing that's so unique about Roman crucifixion is that on the one hand, obviously, it was a physically devastating way to die. It was a, it was a brilliantly cruel method of torture in which you could exact about the most amount of suffering from a person physically that you could get out of them. But let's be clear, there are other equally as effective forms of torture. The thing that made crucifixion such a terrible way to go is it's not just the physical devastation, it's the psychological devastation that it, 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 it wreaked on those that were crucified. Just have you, I just ask you as we close, we're almost done, would you just consider this? When Jesus was raised up on that cross, he, he was literally, he was raised up on a cross, meaning he was a spectacle to all of the crowds that day. And not only was he raised on a cross, but Scripture tells us that his cross itself was placed on a mountain called Mount Calvary. What that means is that people could have seen just the decrepit and gnarled body of Jesus for potentially miles. Even as the sun set, you, you would have been able to see the silhouette of Jesus' tortured body against the night sky. And to be crucified is to be stripped naked and to have your arms nailed open so that you can't even cover your own shame. And what that means for Jesus to die that way, what that is, that is Jesus Christ experiencing the thing that we have been most terrified of and running from from that day in the garden. Jesus on the cross was experiencing what it's like to, to be completely exposed, to take all of our shame, the shame of all of our sin on himself, and to be completely exposed not only before man but even before God the Father. He took everything on himself that we have been so terrified from and finding all these ridiculous ways to compensate for since that fateful day in Genesis chapter 3. Now, with all that in mind, I would, I'd ask you to consider this. Then in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Scripture tells us that what happened on the cross was not just a crucifixion. 
Romans 5.8 says what happened on the cross was not just an execution. Romans 5.8 says that what Jesus did on the cross was actually a demonstration. It says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I want to call the worship team up, and I just want to leave you with this closing thought. The Greek word that's used there, when it says that God demonstrated his love for us, it's a word that means to present evidence in a court of law in in order to prove the validity of your case. So what Romans 5 is telling you and I is that the cross is the evidence that God has set up in the courtroom of our hearts to prove to us that he loves us. Now, for God to talk about the crucifixion that way means, as ridiculous as this sounds, God knew that from Genesis 3 onward, you and I would have this nagging tendency to put him and his love on trial. God knew as a direct result of sin breaking the world that you and I would experience so many things in this world that we look at and we look to as evidence that maybe God doesn't love me. God knew that you would experience things in your childhood home. He knew that you would experience things in your marriage or in your family, trauma that, that, that maybe only you know about. God knew that you would experience all kinds of things in a broken, sin-stained world that you would look at and cause you to question whether or not he loves you. And with that, God knew that just like Adam and Eve, you and I would do so many things that would bring so much internal shame into our lives that we would be asking not just does he love us, but how could he love us? How could he love me given all that I've done? And the cross of Jesus Christ answers both of those questions at the exact same time. It proves not only that he loves us, but it shows us how he can love us. So what God has done, this is what Christianity teaches, is, is God has set up evidence right in the middle of human history to prove to you how much he loves you. And it's been evidence that has been powerful enough to transform the hearts and the minds and the lives of men and women for the last 2,000 years. And what you and I have to do With that evidence is what every responsible person presented with evidence needs to do with it. We need to hold it up. We need to study it. We need to examine it from every angle until we learn everything that it can teach us. Because as we hold up the cross of Jesus Christ, as we look at our exposed Savior taking on the shame that we've been running from and compensating for all our lives, as we look at that, the life-changing Shame-destroying love of God allows us to come out of hiding, to put down our fig leaves, and to walk once more unashamed with our Creator. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, we've been, we've been dealing with shame ever since Genesis chapter 3. It's just a question of how we've been dealing with it or whether or not we're willing to admit it, but it's there. It's passed into every one of our hearts. And the only thing powerful enough to drive it out of us is your love. So God, I just ask that our eyes would be opened. I'm sure I didn't say a whole lot of anything this morning that that these men and women haven't heard before. I just ask that you'd make it more real than it ever has been. We We need to understand the cross as more than just a historical event. We need to understand the cross in a deeply personal way. We need to be pierced to the heart that it was our sin that put Jesus there. But we need to be pierced to the heart completely amazed at at the love of Jesus that would take everything that we've been so terrified of on himself so that we didn't have to carry it around any longer. God, I just ask that you'd make us a community of people that would come on out of hiding, that would put the fig leaves down and just come to our creator knowing that you you have enough love for our sin and our shame and our guilt. You have grace 
for every sinner who's willing to come. There's always room for one more at the foot of the cross. Would you just make it real to us more than it ever has been before by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Amen.